Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 23, the album that changed my life. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic fools, neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps adding up I think I'm cracking up And am I just paranoid? Am I just up? Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time out I am presenting the next in this year's series of episodes called 1994, the most important year of the 90s. This is the, well, technically the third entry in the series, with the last episode of the podcast being the first, and the second being a recent blog post where I took a look at the last episode of the Arsenio Hall show. That should have gone up about, oh, earlier this week, or maybe a week or so, no, a week or so ago, and I embedded YouTube videos of the entire episode and offered commentary, so go check that out when you get the chance. As for the entirety of this series, I will give the blog post a mention, because they're relevant in a way especially when they're relevant anyway, especially since there were plenty of stuff that I'd like to cover that won't be meaty enough for an entire episode of the podcast. But as for this episode today, I'm continuing this series with a look at an album that is incredibly important to the year and to the decade, as well as to me personally, and that is Green Day's Dookie. I'm going to give some background of the album, do a song-by-song review, and then give a, get a little more personal, talking about why I call it the album that changed my life. Now, what was interesting to me when I was doing some background research on this was that it was released a lot earlier than I remember it. You see, when it comes to music, I have a horrible track record. It's extremely rare that I buy a landmark album when it comes out or hear about an important band before they hit it big. Most of the time, I start liking a band after they've become huge, either when the first big single has charted or a long time after everyone else has discovered them. So on February 1st, when a friend of mine from college mentioned that Dookie had turned 20, I was actually surprised. Not surprised that it was 2014. After all, I'd already released an entire episode on this very podcast about 1994 being 20 years ago. But surprised that Dookie came out so early in the year. I'll get really specific about why I associate the album with the latter half of 1994 and not the first half of the year. But in terms of the album's history, it actually makes sense because while Dookie peaked at number two on the Billboard charts, it didn't hit that position until January 28th, 1995, almost a full year after it was released. And for some perspective, as well as, well, because it's fun to do this, let's look at the albums that were big on February 1st, 1994, which is the day Dookie was released, and then look at the albums that were big on the day Dookie hit uh, number two. So, February 5th, 1994, which is the closest date on the Billboard 200 that corresponds to the February 1st release date. Our top ten were Music Box by by Mariah Carey, Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg, Diary of a Mad Band by Jodeci, Janet by Janet Jackson, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Greatest Hits, So Far So Good by Brian Adams, which is also a Greatest Hits collection, Verses by Pearl Jam, The One Thing by Michael Bolton, Bad Out of Hell 2 Back Into Hell by Meatloaf, and Very Necessary by Salt and Peppa. So a real variety of music there. Nothing to tell you that there was some sort of all-out grunge rock assault in the very early 1990s. In fact, two of those are greatest hits collections full of 80s tracks. Several of them are R&B and hip-hop albums, and then there's Meatloaf. Sure, Versus is on there, but by that time, that album had been on the charts for quite a while, so it was kind of running its course, especially since Vitalogy would come out later in the year. And Soundgarden's Super Unknown would come out later in that spring, and it would wind up being pretty big, as would uh, Stone Temple Pilots' album Purple, um, the the latter of which I, I, I absolutely love. Now, Dookie 
comes out in February. Green Day releases Longview as the first single on the same day. There'd be four other singles from the album. Welcome to Paradise, Basket Case, When I Come Around, and She. The last of which was released right around the time this, this album hit its peak position of number two. What was in the top ten? On January 28th, 1995, or the other things in the top 10. Well, topping the charts was the Garth Brooks collection, The Hits. Green Day's Dookie was obviously number two. And starting at number three, we have Two by Boys to Men. Hell Freezes Over by The Eagles, which was that huge reunion album. Vitalogy by Pearl Jam. Smash by The Offspring. My Life by Mary J. Blige. Crazy Sexy Cool by TLC. Nirvana MTV Unplugged in New York. And No Need to Argue by The Cranberries. And I should point out that in the bottom 20 were three greatest hits collections from people from the 70s and 80s. Aerosmith's Big Ones, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band's Greatest Hits, and Bon Jovi's Crossroads. Coming in at number 20, by the way, Weezer's Blue Album, which is another great album that was released in 1994, but will become huge in 1995. I didn't read all those album titles, by the way, just to fill space. I mean, okay, in a sense it did. But it was more to show that first the 90s musically were incredibly eclectic, at least the early 90s were, because a quick glance at the top 10 albums for the same week five years later shows a lot of pop and a lot of watered-down pop rock that came to dominate the late 1990s. And it's not that the late 1990s didn't have any good music, but don't expect me to do a podcast episode on the legacy of Third Eye Blind anytime soon. So yes, eclectic. Furthermore, this was another slow riser. Just like Nevermind would be released in late 1991, but not really hit big until 1992, and just like August and Everything After, which Shell and I covered a few months ago. If you haven't listened to it, I go suggest you go check that episode out. And just like August and Everything After didn't hit for quite a while, you're still seeing a time where records could be cultivated, I guess is the word. I mean, this takes an entire year to go number two, which doesn't seem like it should happen, especially since it was in the top 20 for the better part of six months, bouncing, bouncing between number four and number 13 until it finally made that breakthrough in early January. The album was the first major label release for the band after they put out two albums and two EPs previously on the Berkeley, California-based independent label Lookout Records. There, those were in order, the full-length album, 39 slash smooth, the EP Slappy and 1,000 Hours, the three of which are combined and released into the album 1,039 Smooth Out Slappy Hours, which is what I'm sure a number of people um, own. This is what I own as well. And the other LP was Kerplunk, which sold well enough to get the attention of major labels, and they signed with Reprise Records, which is owned by Warner Brothers. The signing actually caused a bit of a stir among the band's faithful in the San Francisco area punk scene when it happened, mainly because this, with the signing to reprise came accusations that the band sold out. And like I said, I have such a shit track record with music that I can't really comment on that, especially since it's not like I owned any of their indie releases before Dookie came out or anything like that. I did get kerplunk in December of 1994 or so, my friend Vanessa uh, gave me her copy, actually. Hey, Vanessa, I'm pretty sure she's not listening, but if she is, hi. Um, for the most part, Dookie was where I first picked up on the band. So what was it about this band that was so popular? Well, it was their youth. It was their youth and the energy that youth brought with them. Uh, Spin Magazine, which, I don't know, it was Spin Magazine. But Spin Magazine was was one of those kind of go-to places of the 90s. If you're a comics fan, and I'm probably mischaracterizing this, and fans of anybody who actually loves Spin Magazine will will, will probably tear me down on this one, but Spin is to music as Wizard is to comics. So, anyway. Spin ran a profile on the band in September 1994 titled Young, Loud, and Snotty and focused on how they weren't very much older than their audience and were channeling the impetuousness of youth. Describing their appearance at a San Francisco-area modern rock stations festival, Eric Weisbard wrote, There's something that can't be equaled about seeing people almost exactly your age getting to be real live rock stars. The members of Green Day have become rock stars in an eye blink. 
Their third album, Dookie, the first for Warner Brothers after two on the indie label Lookout, has risen to number 31 on the Billboard album chart after MTV Buzzman airplay for the video Longview. At Shoreline, Green Day played the part to perfection, headbutting the microphone, shredding flowers, darting around in shorts like a baby ACDC, tossing out snotty banter. I hope you guys are beating the fuck out of each other and go home with fucking bruises, said Billy Joe. And just plain acting as if throwing out loud rock music on a hot day was what life was all about. During Longview, a song about masturbating bored in front of the television, Billy Joe has, had whipped out his dick and shaken it around during the line, I'm feeling like a dog in heat. Later, during a day when bands were playing half-hour sets and then retreating with mechanical bows, Green Day refused to come off stage. Maybe it was problems with the sound, or maybe Green Day just isn't happy without a little conflict. It did feel a bit rote hearing the band vamp while roadies whispered threatening things into Billy Joe's ear, and the singer suggested to the crowd, now that they're angry with us, we could rip out the seats. Still, even coming off a grueling European tour with no day off in between, Green Day's enthusiasm gave an empty show its only feeling of common purpose. I'll post a link to the entire article in the show notes, but it was things like that, as well as videos for songs like Longview and Basket Case, that got them noticed, as well as what was basically a show-stealing performance at the Woodstock 94 Festival. That festival is probably an episode in itself. But if there are two performances that were unforgettable, one was Nine Inch Nails, bringing down the house, I think it was on the first night, with Trench Reznor just drenched in mud and Green Day actually having a mud fight with the audience during their set which is the type of memorable set that is up there with Otis Redding at Monterey Pop and Queen at Live Aid you think of that particular festival and that's what you immediately go to the less said about Woodstock 99 by the way the better and the Woodstock 94 performance clearly helped the album sell even more records and got them out of the buzz bin because they did start hitting the top 20 and top 10 in the second half of the year. It also helped them cross over from the modern rock charts to the mainstream charts by the end of the summer and through the fall. The album itself took three weeks to record. It was remixed twice and contains 14 songs plus a hidden track that lasts a lean 39 minutes and 38 seconds. The title is actually a reference to the diarrhea that the band used to get from eating bad food while on tour, and the cover depicts bombs being dropped on people in buildings, which was illustrated by artist Richie Butcher. The album's Wikipedia page quotes Billy Billy Joe Armstrong from a VH1 interview in the late 90s, wherein he explains this cover art. I wanted the art to look really different. I wanted to represent the East Bay and where we come from because there's a lot of artists in the East Bay scene that are just as important as the music. So we talked to Richie Boucher. He did a 7-inch cover for this band called Raoul that I liked. He's been also been playing in bands in the East Bay for years. There's pieces of us buried on the album cover. There's one guy with his camera up in the air taking a picture with a beard. He took pictures of bands every weekend at Gilman's. That, the, the robe character that looks like the Mona Lisa is the black woman on the cover of the first Black Sabbath album. Angus Young is in there somewhere too. The graffiti reading Twisted Dog Sisters refers to these two girls from Berkeley. I think the guy saying the fritter fat boy was a reference to a local cop. Also of note is that early pressings of the album featured a crowd shot on the back cover where the only things that are relatively in focus are a girl with a close cropped haircut and a stuffed Ernie doll. But the Ernie doll was eventually airbrushed out of the picture to avoid a copyright litigation. So the songs in the album, in order, are Burnout, Having a Blast, Chump, Longview, Welcome to Paradise, Pulling Teeth, Basket Case, She, Sassafras Roots, When I Come Around, Coming Clean, Eminus Sleepus, In the End, F.O.D., and The Hidden Track, All By Myself. And I'm going to take a look at all 15 of these songs, one by one, after this break. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, 
but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. That is Burnout, the opening track to Dookie, which is such a great opener to an album that I have to say I think it's one of the best opening tracks of all time. And yeah, I'm sure there will be about 20 albums you can put in front of me that have killer opening tracks that would be better or at least more important. When I put my CD into my CD player or listen to the entire album through on my iPod, hearing the drums and then at first line, I declare I don't care no more. Gets me right into the band, right into the music, and really right into the mood, to be honest. Besides, this isn't really an opening song as much as it is a thesis statement, you know? One of the things I'll bring up quite a bit when I'm talking about this album will be Teenage Suburban Ennui. And this song takes that, says, fuck it, and basically tries to tap in the feeling of just being so tired of shit. Which is kind of where we go with the next song, Having a Blast. This one is, well, I used to love this song when I was 17, and I still kind of love it. I think it's because of the time I first listened to it, I was putting up with a lot of shit from a number of people, which I'm not going to get into. But this song, especially this song, and especially the line, I'm taking it all out on you and all the shit you put me through tapped into an anger I had at like specific people and I remember actually being up in my bedroom putting the song very loudly and when it got to that line imagining I was like singing it to people who were pissing me off at that moment in time I know it sounds like stupid but I guess there are worse outlets for one's anger at people who are making their lives suck at any given moment in time and when you think about it, it this is actually like had this song been released in like 1999 um i'm sure it would have ended up on some sort of like controversial songs or do not playlist because it's a song about like basically blowing up everybody who takes you off <laughs> so but again it's it's an outlet and i think that's one of the things that makes this album so so memorable is is the frenetic pace of it in the outlet that it gives you because we're still ticked off we're still tucked off as we go into chump from what i understand this is billy joe armstrong singing about an ex-girlfriend and probably the guy she was seeing after their breakup i can definitely see it I'm pretty sure that I once actually used this song for the same purpose. Re-listening to the album, it's funny how so many of these songs were so important to me as an outlet for whatever I was feeling or whatever bullshit I was going through. And Well, now they're just like on my workout playlists. I'm in my mid-30s. Priorities change. Sadly. Not that I ever had any cred or was cool when I was 17. But Chump leads directly into Longview. It's almost like they're they're two halves of one track. 
And this was the first single. as a single on February 1st, 1994. It peaked at 36 on the Billboard Hot 100, but more notably reached the top of the modern rock charts, and the video was in heavy rotation on MTV, and I'll definitely be putting that in the show notes. What's funny, though, is I actually don't remember any of the videos for the record because I didn't have cable. So my exposure to the album was all through airplay, and by the middle of 1994, the song definitely was in rotation on modern rock stations like K-Rock, WDRE, and Q104. And I think it may have actually made its way to WBAB as well, which is probably where I first heard it, because BAB was the only rock-oriented station that I found I could get consistent reception uh, with uh, in my bedroom. Other ones, I like I could get the reception, but I had to like stay in one part of the room or fiddle with the dial and antenna every once in a while I have no idea why it just my room's radio reception sucked but it did anyway the song well it's got this great bass line which apparently Mike Dirt came up with when he was high on acid but truth be told I actually didn't like the song very much at first um, I mean I'm sure that I noticed it Uh, but Longview didn't blow me away, and it didn't get me to want to buy the album. I'll get to the song that did in a couple of minutes. But the song itself is about masturbation. Well, it's more than that. It's about being so bored off your ass that even masturbating is not worth it. (laughs) Which, well, I mentioned suburban ennui, right? This honestly pretty much is what it's like to be a teenage boy in the suburbs. Yeah, it's not as dramatic as James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause or Judd Nelson's No Dad, What About You? Fuck you. No Dad, What About You? Fuck you. No Dad, What About You? Fuck you! Ah, ah. But by the mid-90s, what the hell did we really have to rebel against? I mean, Bees and Butt had sat around all day making smart-ass remarks about videos. That's pretty much all we had. And I was so damn straight-laced that I had nothing to rebel against. We were bored. And seriously, that's it. And that's what's captured in the song. So so that's why I can appreciate the song now, even if I wasn't really turned on by the song back when I was 17. The next song is Welcome to Paradise. This one, which was the second single off of the album, charted at number 7 on the modern rock charts and actually is re-recorded. It's a re-recording of a song that was on Kerplunk. Uh, According to the band, it was about where they were living at the time when they wrote it, which was actually that they were basically squatting in an abandoned house in Oakland and that was home to them. And I did not know that. I did not know that before I started researching stuff for this episode. I remember hearing this song for the first time and thinking it was some sort of protest song about urban blight and how the cities have been ignored by everyone and allowed to rot. Basically, I thought that was them being angry young men or something. But no, it's a series of letters from Billy Joe to his mother, which begins with him scared to be on his own but ends with him happy to be independent. Again, I'm behind on music. And at 17 years old, I was not exactly astute when it came to interpreting even the most obvious of lyrics. There you go. This is one of the longer songs on the album, by the way. Most of the songs clock in under three minutes or under, and I think this hits about three or four. Next, 
is pulling teeth. Now, I have to admit that I used to skip this song <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, it's not that I didn't like it, but... Well, remember how back in that Counting Crows episode, I said that I used to skip Ghost Train? Uh, because it was between Sullivan Street and Raining in Baltimore? It's pretty much the case with uh, with Pulling Teeth. Pulling Teeth comes between Welcome to Paradise and Basket Case. So I would usually skip over it so I could listen to Basket Case. Still, the lyrics. Now, if you're familiar with Kerplunk... You're familiar with track six of that CD, and that's Dominated Love Slave. It's a silly redneck-sounding song about wanting to take all sorts of BDSM torture. And I think that the phrase, put a belt sander against my skin, is one of the most painful images ever committed to lyric. Pulling teeth sounds like Billy Joe got what he wanted. Um, Like he's in a relationship with the woman he describes in Dominated Love Slave now, or something like that. And... That's it. If you take the lyrics literally, of course, then and that's what I'm doing right here. But figuratively speaking, it's a rough relationship, I guess. I don't know. I, I prefer the former, though, because, you know, belt sander. So. Track number seven is Basket Case. So I better hold on. You heard this at the beginning of the episode. You're hearing it now, and this song... Uh, well, this is the one. This song hit 26 in the Billboard Hot 100, 16 on the Pop 40 Mainstream, 9 on the Mainstream Rock Charts, 1 on the Billboard Modern Rock Charts after being released on November 29th, 1994. The video, which was shot in actual in an actual mental institution, was nominated for 9 MTV Video Music Awards in 1995. Video of the Year, Best Group Video, Best Metal Hard Rock Video, Best Alternative Video, Breakthrough Video, Best Direction, Best Editing, Best Cinematography, and the Viewer's Choice Award. It didn't win any of them. But this song, which is Billy Joe writing about his own struggles with anxiety, is what sold me on Green Day and what led me to buying the album. I don't think the lyrics spoke to me as much as the quickness of the music did. Uh, it wasn't like anything I'd been listening to at the time, although I remember for some reason a friend of mine seemed a little too into the importance of the line, I went to a whore, he, he said my life's a bore, which I guess does address Armstrong's bisexuality, but at the time I didn't think I honestly gave a shit whether or not it said he or she. Uh, especially since this song is just so fucking good, you know, I mean... As I'll get into more details later, this was the gateway to the album for me. So, and it still remains one of my favorite tracks on the entire CD. Next up is another one that is one of my all-time favorite Green Day songs, and that's She. This was the fifth and final single released from the album. It was released on May 5th, 1995. It hit 41 on the Billboard Hot Airplay chart, 8 on the Mainstream Rock tracks, 5 on the Modern Rock chart. And there's a bass line here that I love along with a set of music that remind me a bit of, a bit of Daughter by Pearl Jam. Because it's about a girl, or at least somebody being sensitive toward a girl. I remember a girl that I liked my senior year telling me how much she loved that song, and I completely agreed with her, and actually genuinely agreed with her, not just because I liked her, you know? The chorus? Awesome. The chorus of the song is awesome. Completely awesome. Uh, and if you're going to download any individual tracks from Dookie, make this one of them. Sassafras Roots is up next. And it's not that I don't like the song, but it's a short song. It's about wasting time. Again, suburban ennui, the ennui of teenage life. And it's not just anthemic, it just is. And it comes before When I Come Around, which was the fourth of the five singles released from the album. 
This was Green Day's biggest crossover hit at the time. It's actually the band's second best-selling single of the 1990s, behind Good Riddance Time of Your Life. It placed number one on the modern rock charts, number two on the both the Billboard Mainstream Rock and the Mainstream Top 40 charts. It peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 Airplay charts. The song is, well, I can see why it was a hit, because it was more slower slower paced, it was slightly longer than some of the others, and it was definitely radio-friendly. And I never actually liked it very much. It's not a bad song. It just slowed things down. And that's why I was never a huge fan of it. Yeah, I mean, there's really not much to say about it. It's a good song, but between it's it's put between Satisfied Roots and then like Coming Clean and Eminem Sleepless, which are very very short songs. And to me, it slowed down the pace of the album. But again, what did I know at the time, right? Coming Clean is is track eleven. Which I've used on an episode of Taking Flight, believe it or not. Uh, but um, this did speak to me when I was 17. And what's funny is it can be interpreted in a number of different ways. Especially since Billy Joe Armstrong has said it's about him coming to terms with his bisexuality. Yet not knowing that when I was 17 and going through some sort of odd identity crisis. I just thought it was about like, you know being a teenager so I took it as like an anthem of some sort not realizing how personal it was to the singer again not the most mysterious of lyrics but it's great it's great it's very short um, very to the point and it leads into Enemus Sleepus which is the next song play that and I know I, the last couple of songs I've gone very very quickly but if you listen to everything after she with the exception of when I come around and FOD, because FOD has the hidden track on it. These are all really short songs. Coming Clean, Eminence Sleepus, in the end, they're all under two minutes. And Eminence Sleepus, I actually used to confuse a lot with Sassafras Roots. And still, I, I can never remember the beginning of Sassafras Roots, and I always think it's Eminence Sleepus when it's not. And both are very, very good. Um, Eminence Sleepus is the better is the better song of the two. <laughs> And I like how it just seems to be about a rift between friends, about how someone you've known for a long time, and um, and how they can just become so different when you have such different interests and you grow apart. Why am I thinking of Angela Chase and Sharon Chersky? There was this TV show. Anyway, in the end is the next track. It's a great punk track written about Armstrong's mother and boyfriend. It, it's very short. I'm not going to say too much about it because it leads into FOD. Something's on my mind. It's been for quite some time. It's time I'm on. And the reason I'm slapping these two next to each other is that I remember when I first got this album thinking these were a pair of songs that were kind of inseparable. And if I have to choose between the two, I actually would pick FOD, which of course stands for Fuck Off and Die. And this is, it's just a pissed off song. I mean, that's what I like about it. And it ends, and then there's silence, and then we come back with Trey Cool singing All By Myself, which is a silly hidden track. It's also about masturbation. It's all by myself. And it's not, it's not really, it's not really punk. It's just him kind of, you can tell he's just kind of fucking around. And it's weird in a way though. And the reason it's weird, because if you actually listen to lyrics, it kind of combines masturbation with stalking. Like not only do I jerk off thinking about you, I jerk off in your bedroom when I'm thinking about you, when you're not around. 
And I honestly think that this is the most time that masturbation has been mentioned on a podcast that isn't about sex. I'm going to take a break. You can think about that. And when I get back, um, I'm going to talk about my own personal story of sorts when it comes to Dookie, the album. I'll be right back. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. So, a few weeks ago, uh, there was this story on, I want to say it was like BuzzFeed. It might have been on Gawker, but it was, it was but it, I think it was probably on BuzzFeed. Uh, it was one of those, one of those sites, and, and, and it was about how next to Nevermind, Dookie is the most important album in the 90s. Uh, the reason the writer gave was because it was different from the rest of the stuff that came out at the time, and there was, and as a result... Of Dookie, there was a pop punk explosion because of the album's success. And it's a fair assessment because if you really do look at the history of punk, you have this explosion of the genre in the late 1970s with the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and so forth. And then punk kind of goes underground for most of the 80s. I mean, you've got New Wave taking over, which some New Wave does sound like punk, but it's not punk. And, um,. New Wave ends up being more photogenic and videogenic anyway, especially when you have the rise of MTV uh, and MTV promoting a lot of these bands, which by the time MTV really, really hit big with these bands, there was there was no connection between New Wave and punk, or at least the music it was very, very synth-pop heavy. And my overview of this here is sketchy at best. In all honesty, if you want a great look at uh, the 1980s in terms of punk, hardcore, independent, and underground music, go read Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Uh, this is a book that takes play- that takes a look at about five or six different bands from the 1980s. Um, Black Flag, Minor Threat, The Replacements. Love The Replacements. Fugazi, The Butthole Surfers, Mission to Burma, uh, Husker Du, uh, a number of other bands. This is a really, really great, great book. I highly recommend it. Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarad. Um, and the other book I recommend, if you want a good history of music in the 80s, is I Want My MTV, an oral history of MTV. And I may have mentioned that book before. Uh, it is half history of MTV and half history of the 80s music industry and music, and, and music as a whole. And it is so so good. It's just so good. I really, really recommend it. But really, punk went underground in the 80s, and Green Day was really instrumental in launching it out of the underground and into the stratosphere in the 1990s. With And with such mainstream success, I can understand accusations from its hardcore fans of selling out. But since selling out and being legit and having cred and being well, that means jack all to someone who was never cool to begin with and who was living in his um, suburban house listening to Metallica and Queen records and things like that. Um, I can honestly say that I liked Green Day anyway, so sell it or not, you know? All right, it's a lie. I didn't know anything about it. I was one of those suburban kids, like I said. Real punks would have looked down on me because I was like, oh, now you're into punk too. It must not be cool anymore and all that shit. But like I said at the very beginning of this episode, Dookie is the album that changed my life. And besides being uncool, I should talk a little bit more about what I was like at 17 years old before getting the album. So right around the ninth grade, I discovered music. In a way. I mean, I had listened to the radio. I knew music for, for quite a while before. I had watched them TV on a, on a regular basis whenever I could go to one of my friend's houses and stuff. But 
and I already owned a few tapes, you know, and I did, but, but ninth grade was really when I discovered bands, you know, bands that weren't like Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, whom I still love. Um, but this was like, cool, like contemporary cool, like the cool kids bands. And most of the bands that I discovered, quote unquote, were ones that I started listening to basically because I wanted to fit in with the people I was hanging around with. Um, that's why I have Three Guns and Roses CDs. And that's why I have every Metallica album from Kill Em All all the way to Garage Inc. with the exception of Live, Ship, Binge, and Purge because I just couldn't afford the $100. In retrospect, when I think of what I owned and what I actually spent my time, most of my time listening to in private and not really sharing with my friends, I was gravitating more toward lighter stuff than the heavy metal that they were all listening to and that I kind of joined in on. Years before I got my first Metallica CD, like I said, I had Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen cassettes. I had Bohemian Rhapsody charted in 1992 with Wayne's World, and that got me really into Queen, um, as did seeing Highlander. Because <laughs> I, I listened to Kind of Magic. I think I wore that tape out uh, in, in high school. But like I said, though, my friends, they all started listening to metal. And yeah, then they got into the Seattle stuff. They got into Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and, and Nirvana and then by extension Stone Temple Pilots and things. Uh, but the big thing, and, and I have a lot of Nine Inch Nails CDs for some reason, but but the big thing seemed to really be that heavy stuff. Um, friends of mine, the people who are quote-unquote the leaders of this group, love Metallica, they love Pantera. And here I am, I'm wanting to fit in or at least not be made fun of. And... So I'm buying Master of Puppets. I'm buying Ride the Lightning because I felt on some level that I was supposed to own them. And not that they're bad albums or anything, but I can definitely say that I eventually hit a point where I discovered... I like to say that I outgrew metal, but I just discovered that that wasn't me. And I honestly have not listened to either Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets in a good 15 years. And it happened... Mostly during college. Uh, mainly because I was away from these people. And that's when those things sort of happen anyway. You discover like your roommates have different tastes and you get into different types of music because you share CDs and you know you buy a Dave Matthews CD because there's a girl and you're trying to get laid. And, uh, and, but, um, but Green Day. Green Day came out uh, when I was in high school, of course. I was. Um, it, they came out my, my junior year and... I discovered it right around the time of my senior year. It wasn't exactly anything novel because, you know, again, I got into them right when everybody else got into them. But I always look at Dookie because of its gateway effect. Like I said earlier, punk basically went underground in the 1980s. And while I hadn't heard any of their music, uh, there were certain bands that I knew existed, mainly because some of those cooler kids in my junior high and high school, granted, they were all like skater kids, and I guess you could say later on burnouts, but they were all walking around with Circle Jerks t-shirts, and they were writing Dead Kennedys logos on their notebooks. And punk, punk was foreign to me. Punk was foreign to me. I mean, I had one replacement song on the Say Anything soundtrack, but Within Your Reach isn't exactly a punk song. So enter this guy who I'd been friends with since we were little kids, this guy named Chris. And Chris, at this point, he was more like a school friend than a best friend because when we were little kids, we were best friends. But by the time we were teenagers, since we went to different elementary schools, we kind of, you know, lost touch and we started going to high school, junior high and high school together. So we were like, you know, friends in school, but you know, it's not like we hung out together on a regular basis. So anyway, if I call, call correctly, at one point during junior year, he went and saw Green Day play in the city and the next day he came in wearing Green Day t-shirt. And... That was the first I'd ever heard of the band. So in my head, since Chris was cool and he was wearing the Green Day t-shirt, the band must be cool. This is seriously like how I thought some things through when I was 17. Bear with me. It didn't get me to go out and buy Dookie. Um, I kept listening to the radio. I cranked everything from Metallica to Mellencamp in my stereo at home. Because when you're at home in your room, you can listen to whatever the hell you want. Nobody's going to judge you. That's why I had a Righteous Brothers tape. Anyway, there's an entry on that somewhere. Uh, Longview, by let's get to back on topic. Longview was uh, was on the radio at the time, and like I said, I didn't really necessarily like the song. Um, 
at least it wasn't really turning me on, but then two things happened that completely changed my mind. The first, as I said before, was that I heard Basket Case. My reaction to that was, holy shit, this is the most awesome song ever. I want this album now. And I'm pretty sure that I got it pretty shortly thereafter. And the second thing that happened was the WWOR, Channel 9, uh, which in the New York area is out of New Jersey, is in the New York area, ran a week-long documentary back in like the fall of 95 called The History of Rock and Roll. One of the episodes was simply called Punk. And this episode uh, went th- through everything about punk rock and ended with shots of Green Day's Mud Fight at the Woodstock 94 Festival. So I watched that episode and I learned about the Ramones. I learned about the Clash. I learned about the Sex Pistols. I learned about X. I learned about some other bands. Um, And you put that with the fact that I was like, Basket Case is the coolest song I've ever heard. I got not just Dookie, but I got a Ramones compilation and the first album by the Clash. And I was hooked. Now, my look never changed. I still had the same nerdy-ass, questionable fashion taste that I did wearing a Dartmouth hockey jersey with my name on it and a Dartmouth hat that I did before I listened to Green Day. And I honestly do look pretty much the same I like I did in in high school or dressed the same. I have a better, slightly better fashion sense thanks to my wife. I am bald, and I probably, if I lost 40 pounds, I'd look like I did in high school. But, um, but I've really changed my outward appearance to be honest with you it's matured slightly and I've never ever really changed to dress the way a band dresses to follow a band or anything like that I used to have some band t-shirts but you know it's not like okay you know Green Day is huge I'm gonna get my you know, I'm gonna get a mohawk and you know pierce my put a clothespin through my ear new waves back let me get the flock seagulls haircut you know I was never that was never me I mean, because I didn't really rebel. I guess I knew that it would be me trying too hard if I did change my look. But I definitely immersed myself in the music. And it kind of became a way for me to rebel. Well, all right. I don't know if it's accurate because I did very little. Like I said, I had very little to rebel against. Aside from maybe feeling bored and feeling I was playing a role. Which is how you feel when you live in the same town and go to the same school with the same people your whole life. I mean, my biggest act of rebellion in high school was probably dating someone who my parents hated. Still, as I've said more than a few times now, there was something in the lyrics to this album that spoke to me in a way that nothing else really had. As did other albums and other bands. Um, Furthermore, while they would eventually go get into some punk... Most of my friends didn't run out and buy The Clash of the Ramones here upon hearing Green Day. Uh, and They just got themselves worked up with whatever the hell Metallica was doing at the time. And uh, I started to see that not only was punk great to listen to, but it started me on the road to realizing I shouldn't be so self-conscious about what I was listening to and enjoying. And that was really more important to me than anything. And it didn't happen overnight. I definitely fell into that sort of, everyone's listening to this, so I should too trap which explains why i have so many mighty mighty boston cds uh but let's just say that while i was typing up the notes for this episode i actually was listening i was listening to green day because i listened to the album all the way through like i said it's a 40 minute album go out and get it but i had a mix um i was typing up the notes and it was late so i i tend to listen to lighter music at night so i was listening to Ten Thousand maniacs Indigo Girls, Van Morrison, Simon and Garfunkel, stuff that maybe the girls would have liked or like been like, oh, I like that song back in high school, but I would have caught so much shit for listening to, which, again, boggles my mind sometimes. And maybe it's just me. I don't know. But that, and that was then. I mean, that was then and this is now. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm way past the age of giving a shit anyway. But I'm glad that an album like Dookie started me on the road to not giving a shit <laughs> sooner rather than later, really. 
Green Day, by the way, just to just to bring it back to the band, uh, they would release other albums to varying degrees and various degrees of success. They'd follow up Dookie with Insomniac in late 1995, early 1996. It's a good album. Um, I, I never actually bought it. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, the copy I have in the house is actually my wife's. When we moved in together, combined CDs, uh, CD collections. Uh, Dookie, uh, we both had copies of Dookie, and she had a copy of Insomniac. Um, her her area of expertise, her her strength is uh, R and B and hip hop. So, um, I would, by the way, get Nimrod, uh, which I love. Warning, which sometimes I feel I'm the only person in the world who enjoys Warning. Uh, Church on Sunday is one of my favorite Green Day songs. It's just, just great. Uh. And they would return to that sort of chart dominance in the early 2000s with American Idiot, uh, a, a punk opera that rivals Dookie in its awesomeness. Uh, the last albums of theirs that I bought was 21st Century Breakdown. I've only listened to that all the way through once or so. Uh, they've released a few more in the last um, couple of years, and uh, I don't have any of them. I may pick them out, may pick them up. I have a couple of students who... Are, are very into Green Day and uh, may may ask them about you know which one which one is worth picking up or what songs are worth downloading because I haven't bought a CD in a good four years now. Um, but I'm thinking I'll take this I'll take us out by saying thanks for listening to me talk about the album um, and recommending uh, that you go into your own CD collection find it. Because I know you have it. We all have it. And if you don't have it, go to iTunes. Go to Amazon and get it. Then dust this sucker off and give it a listen and have a great time. Next time, I will continue my look at 1984 with one of my favorite PCSD movies. And until then... Check out the blog for more essays about 1994 as well as some other stuff. Uh, I have uh, some Titan stuff coming down the pike and and some stuff that, that's not related to this series. But again, thank you for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.